Welcome back to the Hemingway list for book 13, chapter 7. Two lines jumped out at me in this chapter. There being no greater freedom of operation than on a battlefield, where life and death are at stake, it would be difficult, nay impossible, to imagine any outcome of that battle more expedient than the one that occurred. What is your take on these two lines? Do you agree with Tolstoy in what he's saying here? Rybred Egg says, I'll take a stab at the first one. There's no greater freedom. I would have to disagree. I think that you have to, the greatest freedom when you, no one is telling you what to do. In other words, you are not free unless you are the ruler of self and abide by natural laws that all men share. I think this line sounds cool, but I don't think it's accurate. Yeah, I didn't think it was accurate. I remember thinking while I read it, like, it's not that free to be on a battlefield. Like, you've pretty much got to fight. <laughs> Or you're going to die. And I feel like people on a battlefield would be longing to be somewhere that would seem to characterize freedom. Like, you know, back home or at the beach or something, you know. So, it's a weird line. I didn't agree with it either. Acoustic Eel says, Kutuzov is finally being recognized for the success of his wait and see strategy after being upbraided by the Emperor of Moscow. For, sorry, for leaving Moscow, but saving the army. Good for him. FDLP1 says, Tolstoy is so hesitant to give Kutuzov any credit, but there's something to be said for minimizing your losses, especially after how upset he'd been uh, two chapters ago. Kutuzov said nothing, but when he received a report that Murat's troops were in the retreat, he gave the order to advance, but every hundred yards he halted for three quarters of an hour. Even in his advance... He's halting and waiting as much as possible. Gotta love that old Kutuzov. Chapter 8 goes like this. Napoleon enters Moscow after a brilliant victory. De la Moscoa, there can be no doubt. But the victory for the battlefield remains in the hands of the French. The Russians retreat and abandon their ancient capital. Moscow, abounding in provisions, arms, munitions and incalculable wealth, is in Napoleon's hands. The Russian army, only half the strength of the French, does not make a single attempt to attack for a whole month. Napoleon's position is most brilliant. He can either fall on the Russian army with double its strength and destroy it, negotiate an advantageous peace, or, in case of a refusal, make a menacing move on Petersburg. Or even in the case of a reverse, return to Smolensk or Vilna, or remain in Moscow. In short, no special genius would seem to be required to retain the brilliant position the French held at that time. For that, only very simple and easy steps were necessary not to allow the troops to loot, to prepare, prepare for winter clothing, of which there was sufficient in Moscow, for the whole army, and methodically to collect the provisions, of which, according to the French historians, there were enough in Moscow to supply the whole army for six months. Yet, Napoleon, the greatest of all geniuses, who the historians declare had control of the army, took none of these steps. He not merely did nothing of the kind, but on the contrary, he used his power to select the most foolish and ruinous of all the courses open to him. Of all that Napoleon might have done, wintering in Moscow, advancing on Petersburg or on Nizhny Novgorod, or retiring by a more northerly or more southerly route, say by the road Kutuzov afterwards took, nothing more stupid or disastrous can be imagined 
than what he actually did. He remained in Moscow till October, letting the troops plunder the city. Then, hesitating whether to leave a garrison behind him, he quitted Moscow, approached Kutuzov without joining battle, turned to the right and reached Malal Yaroslavets, again without attempting to break through and take the road Kutuzov took, but retiring instead to Mosheysk along the devastated Smolensk road. Nothing more stupid than that could have been devised, or more disastrous for the army. As the sequel showed, had Napoleon's aim been to destroy his army, the most skillful strategist could hardly have devised any series of actions that would so completely have accomplished that purpose, independently of anything the Russian army might do. Napoleon, the man of genius, did this, but to say that he destroyed his army because he wished to, or because he was very stupid, would be as unjust as to say that he had brought his troops to Moscow because he wished it to, and because he was very clever and a genius. In both cases, his personal activity, having no more force than the personal activity of any soldier, merely coincided with the laws that guided the event. The historians quite falsely represent Napoleon's faculties of having weakened in Moscow, and do so only because the results did not justify his actions. He employed all his ability and strength to do the best he could for himself and his army, as he had done previously, and as he did subsequently in 1813. His activity at that time was no less astounding to it than it was in Egypt, in Italy, in Austria, and in Prussia. We do not know for certain in how far his genius was genuine in Egypt, where forty centuries looked down upon his grandeur, for this, for his exploits there are all told by the Frenchman. We cannot accurately estimate his genius in Austria or Prussia, for we have to draw our information from French or German sources, and the incomprehensible surrender of whole corps without fighting in a fortress, without a siege, must incline Germans to recognise his genius as the only explanation of the war carried on in Germany, but we, thank God, have no need to recognise his genius in order to hide our shame. We have paid for the right to look at the matter plainly and simply, and we will not abandon that right. His activity in Moscow was as amazing as full of genius as elsewhere. Order after order and plan after plan were issued by him from the time he entered Moscow till the time he left it. The absence of citizens and of a deputation, and even the burning of Moscow, did not disconcert him. He did not lose sight either of the welfare of his army or of the doings of the enemy or of the welfare of the people of Russia or of the direction of affairs in Paris or of the diplomatic considerations concerning the terms of anticipated peace. Alright, there's a chapter for you. Napoleon is a dumbass, is the moral of that one, Uh, according to Tolstoy. Alright, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.